Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. Today, Rachel Style is here to speak with us about eating disorders in runners. Rachel is an eating disorder recovery advocate and the author of Running in Silence, which shares her story as an all-American athlete struggling with anorexia and binge eating. She's also the founder of the Running in Silence nonprofit to break misconceptions and raise awareness for eating disorders in sports, serves on the board for the Michigan Eating Disorder Alliance, and is currently a mentor for the USTF CCCA Female Coaches Mentorship Program. Rachel has been interviewed for numerous publications, including U.S. News and World Report, Vogue Magazine, and Women's Running. She's delivered presentations at coaching clinics, high schools, and colleges across the country to share her story, create awareness, and bring hope to other coaches and athletes. Rachel is writing her second book and coaches high school cross country and track. Thanks so much for being here, Rachel. We know you can really help us to consider this topic from a few different sides. So let's just dive right in. We understand your passion for eating disorder awareness in sport is built on your personal experience as a runner. So let's start there. Tell us about your early involvement with running. When did you start running? What did you like about it? Why was running the sport for you? Well, I got to watch my mom run from a very young age. She started running when she was 28 and didn't have me till she was 38. So she was running before I was even born and through her pregnancy with me, um, all approved by the doctor. But so running has definitely been in my family. My grandma runs too on my dad's side. She's awesome. We call her power grandma. Uh, so running has always been like a very fun family sport. And from a young age, I was around five. We had this race, I think it was in kindergarten and I took second and I loved the idea of like working hard towards something to beat that girl in front of me. So my mom created like a little training plan for me, like very conservative. She was very adamant that this should be fun and slow progress over time. And I found that I was a good runner when I put everything to work. And so when I realized I was actually pretty good at this, when I put in the work, I loved that I guess, structure. And it really fit my personality because I've been such a perfectionist since a very young girl, which of course would contribute to problems later. But I also found a lot of strength in being able to have that schedule and work hard and see the results. And so through elementary school, I was so excited to run in high school and college. And I would get so excited for workouts that I could barely sleep you know, the night before, because it was that fun for me. I had a huge passion for it. That's awesome. I can just imagine little Rachel like, oh, I get to go. <laughs> I get to get up and go. And it's true, you know, sports have so much to offer us, right? And it's it's also true that, that involvement in some sports is correlated with a higher risk for eating disorder development. In fact, we know that some of the, the very same personality traits that make athletes successful in sport are the same traits that put people at greater risk for eating disorders. So tell us a little bit about when your eating disorder entered your life and, and the disordered eating, disordered thoughts, disordered beliefs related to your performance that came with it. I think a lot of people struggle with body image, especially growing up and seeing the media that can definitely be a factor. It's not the sole factor in my eating disorder, but I noticed 
I talk about this a lot in my running in silence book too. I felt my stomach was a lot bigger than everyone else's. And my parents kind of laughed because they thought it was cute and endearing. But for me, like I harbored that for a long time and thought that there was something wrong with my body and people could make fun of it. So that had always been with me. And through high school, I started comparing myself a little bit to other runners, wishing that I could have a smaller stomach and thinking again, that there was something wrong with me to the point where I thought, wait, I can fix this. And I thought if I just, you know, restricted how much food I was eating in each meal that I would be able to fix this broken part of me. And so I I started doing that in high school and unfortunately saw that I was also running faster when I was losing weight. And I, that became the sole predictor of my success in my head. This was very disordered. I had no idea because I didn't hear any stories of athletes struggling with this. Again, I just thought it was something wrong with me. I couldn't talk to anyone about it because I thought they would think, or they would realize that I had this obsession with food that I felt was very embarrassing. So my eating disorder started in high school. No one really noticed. They noticed something was wrong. And this is an important part of the story too. Like it affected me in so many other areas besides my weight. I was getting very withdrawn. I was barely hanging out with my friends. I was constantly thinking about food. I was starting to count calories and pulling away from everything else that I loved in my life. I used to play piano too. And my piano was suffering. Like my memory was just not that great. And I didn't realize it was partly because I was restricting food. I thought I was finally doing something right. And that trailed into my first semester at Aquinas College, which most people will experience a lot of mental health struggles or an eating disorder with a big change in their life. So I'm kind of the poster child for that. Like I was going from high school to college with this big change and a new food environment and running competitively. I felt that I needed to continue to watch my food in order to be successful and happy, which led to binge eating later down the line. Everyone's eating disorders look different, but that's where mine led to, especially the more I was restricting large food groups. I was still restricting calories, thinking I needed to get to a lower weight to run faster. And of course, it turns out I my performances actually suffered in the long run, and I had a very up and down running career through college because of how much the eating disorder was affecting not just my running, but also everything else in my life, including my grades, something I had been very hardworking with at that time. Yeah, it's true, right? That so, so often eating sort of sort of start and then start to just consume everything else in somebody's life so that grades go and friendships and, and mood and all those other things. When did you sort of start to recognize that you might be struggling with something and how did you go about seeking help? I think that the title of your book and, and running in silence makes me think that you probably were struggling in silence for quite some time, which so many people do. How did you go about getting some support? Yeah, I, it definitely goes back to that shame factor. I didn't think athletes struggled with the eating disorders. At the time I was struggling, I didn't qualify it as an eating disorder. I thought it wasn't bad enough. So I thought if I were to tell someone, they would just blow it off and think that I was overthinking things and just, you know, focus on whatever else I needed to focus on at the time. 
And I recognized there was somewhat of a problem when I was writing in my journal going into my freshman year in college that I couldn't stop thinking about food and I had no idea how to stop. Again, I thought there was just something wrong with me and I was getting scared. And then with the, when the binge eating started my sophomore year at Aquinas College and it didn't stop, it continued to take over my life to the point where I was binging multiple times a week and thinking, why couldn't I just do what I did when I was restricting food? I finally got to the point where I felt I needed to tell someone what was going on still absolutely embarrassed and scared. And the first person I told was my mom. I have the whole conversation in the Running in Silence book too. It did not go well from the start, but I'm really glad we had the conversation because we have never had such a great relationship as we do now once I started opening up about it. And we often say that eating disorders are not just about the food or the exercise, it's about so much more. And that was the first time that I was really being authentic and it allowed me to be myself. She gave me permission to be myself. Even though the start of the conversation didn't go well, we finally found a way to be able to open up and hear each other too. That's a beautiful story. How did, how did you handle running during that time? You know, we know that, that often people need to take a break from, from sport when they're in recovery, especially early on as, as people are in early recovery and the body is starting to repair itself and particularly trying to examine our relationship with movement. How was, how did that work for you? What was the case for you? And and what did you learn during that time? I was very fortunate that my coach was actually supportive of my recovery. He was never one to encourage us to count calories or lose weight. He never encouraged any of that or talked about body weight or size. So when I had a conversation with him about it and he expressed supporting my recovery. It actually helped my running in the long run. I think I ran healthier than I would have if he would have said, oh yeah, well, maybe you do need to lose the weight again. You know, just unhelpful (laughs) comments made by some coaches. So the running was a roller coaster is probably the best metaphor to give it. I had some good performances. I had some really bad performances. I was still learning how to eat and working with a dietitian and therapist while I was competing. Everyone finds what works best for them. I was told that I would be able to continue to compete, but I was also working with professionals to help navigate that. And there was one point where I reached my junior year track season. And even though my dietitian and therapist said it was okay for me to continue to compete, I decided for myself that it was not helping. Each race that I did was like a comparison. I often said it was like stepping on the scale because I was looking at times like I would look at the numbers on the scale and feeling that I needed to lose weight again to be able to run faster. And it just kept me in a really vicious cycle of restricting binging. So when I recognized that that was a problem, I decided to opt out of the track season. My coach supported me, probably didn't fully understand because I appeared healthy. And again, that's the big thing with eating disorders. You don't have to be a certain weight or size. And everyone who looked at me thought I was fine. Then going into the summer, I really had to grapple with what my relationship with running would look like going forward. Long story short, I no longer run today, partially because I have gone through so many injuries with running, probably because the eating disorder. I am very involved with the running world and athletics through running and silence and 
coaching cross country and track. So I'm glad I'm a part of it all, but the eating disorder probably went on so long that it just wasn't working with the sport I was doing. Yeah, it does make sense. I, with your coach, the, there's a the really powerful vignette in the book when you describe the, the message that coach gives you that I loved that concept about when you were sharing your fears with your coach and what your coach said. Can you share that little story with us? Yeah, I was so scared to sit down with him. I alluded to the eating disorder a bit in our online running logs that we had. So he kind of knew what was going on, but I had to actually put together an email to say, Hey, I am going to therapy and seeing a dietitian. I was so scared that he would think I was just going to spread this eating disorder across the team that he would see me differently. But his conversation with me was really compassionate and open. And he was listening and he said he would support probably one of the most picture-perfect conversations a coach can have with their athlete. I don't think he even realizes that he was just being a good coach, a good person. And I told him at the end of the conversation, I was starting to tear up. I was like, I am just so scared. I won't run as fast anymore if I don't lose the weight or engage in the eating disorder. And he said, you don't have to be fast. You have to be healthy. And I didn't believe him at the time. It wasn't like a magic moment where I was like, oh yeah, he knows what he's talking about. I thought he was just saying something fluffy to make sure I didn't continue with the eating disorder, but he was wise at that time. He was looking at the long-term progression of my running and me, if I would have heard from a coach to continue to lose weight again, I would have been more trapped in that restrict bench cycle and been stuck in my running and stuck in my life. I wouldn't have been able to move forward. I absolutely believe that my coach's words in that moment kept me in running much longer than I would have been in a good way, in a healthy way. I was able to continue competing for the next few years in college at a pretty healthy spot. So uh, yeah, it goes back to thinking of the overall health of the athlete because it not only helps the person that the athlete is, but it will help performances too. And I try to make that very clear to coaches that, yeah, we look at numbers a lot, but if we're too focused on that, we could actually end up ruining the athletes that we have. It's not going to help in the long run. Right. Absolutely. Well, and now you're a coach yourself and, and we know you're, you're, super passionate about supporting your athletes, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally as well. And not just about performance, right? Because it's not just about the, the performance and the athlete, but as a whole person. What kind of training did you get about eating disorders as a coach? What kind of education or resources on how to support athletes who might be struggling with an eating disorder have you received as a coach? I, I have a feeling, I know what the answer is, but what sort of training do you get as a coach? As far as I can remember, we didn't get any training about eating disorders. I took a level one coaching class too, and they lightly brushed over it. And this isn't even a mandatory coaching class for all coaches. I appreciate that they even mentioned eating disorders a little bit, but it seemed a little more geared toward women, which eating disorders affect men as well. And I wasn't sure, even though I had had an eating disorder and know what I would have appreciated as an athlete, I wasn't sure as a coach how to handle it or how to help someone who is struggling. I'm very fortunate to have met Dr. Paula Quattrimoni, who is a registered dietitian and one of the leading eating disorders in sports experts in the US. 
She is also on the advisory board for Running in Silence, but she jumped on as a mentor for me because I had all of these questions as a coach and as someone who was very immersed in the eating disorder recovery world about how to deal with certain situations. And I'd get messages from coaches like they have an athlete who's struggling and this is the specific situation. I didn't know how to handle it. And coaches deserve to have that information. I know a lot of us kind of jump on coaches' backs about how they're implementing certain trainings around weight. And I think a lot of coaches have been failed by other people at the top who are not implementing these trainings. It's just a lack of education and information all around. So I talked to Dr. Paula Quattrimoni and learned so much from her about working with professionals and decided that with Running in Silence, the nonprofit I started in 2018, to have conversations about this, make it as simple as possible because coaches have a lot on their plates. There's a lot to deal with. I know that as a coach myself, and I just coach high school, not college. I wanted to make it as easy as possible and manageable and help coaches to not feel overwhelmed. They don't have to understand everything there is to know about eating disorders, but they can know who to turn to and how to handle different situations. I think that has helped me as a coach and it's going to help so many other coaches as well. Oh, I imagine that's so valuable to coaches and you're right. It's again, I mean, coaches have so many responsibilities and need to know so much information and eating disorders information isn't uh, as robust as it like it needs to be in, in many a curricula around uh, different professionals. So uh, coaches certainly aren't alone in that position of you will definitely see somebody with an eating disorder and it would be wonderful if coaches felt like they knew what to do because it is a, a difficult situation when you feel like you don't know what to do. What, what key things do you, do you want coaches to know? Like if you, you know, wave your magic wand, what would you tell every coach in the, in the world about working? I always go back to the three R's that I talk about in the running and silence presentations. It's the recognition of eating disorders beyond weight or appearance. We got to look at behaviors. The second R is how we can assist our athletes with receiving help, understanding the resources around us how to utilize those and how to have a conversation with our athletes. And the final R is recovery. What is our role in the athlete's recovery process? Because most of us are not dietitians or therapists, but how can we best support our athletes? And I often give a few examples from my own coach. He wasn't perfect, but he did a great job even without having the tools and knowledge. And I would say the biggest thing, just because it affected me the most in my story is that you likely may have an athlete with an eating disorder and they may not look like what you may imagine an eating disorder to look like. My weight fluctuated a lot. Not everyone's weight is going to fluctuate, but I feel if someone would have recognized the behaviors and signs sooner, I would have gotten help sooner. So if coaches can be more aware of that, that is the first great step to being able to have those open conversations with our athletes and be looking out for them because we serve such, we are such an influence and a wonderful mentor for the next generation of people to come through. And yeah, we have really important roles. Absolutely. It is. It's so true, right? So many kids and, and adults have such a strong role model mentoring relationship with a coach in their life. So it, it is really a beautiful thing. What warning signs should coaches look for? I, I imagine that might be one of those 
pieces that you talk pretty frequently about when you talk to coaches, like what do you tell coaches to look for in terms of warning signs? It's tough because especially in sports, we're trying to decipher between what's just a very dedicated, hardworking athlete and someone who's actually engaging in disordered eating or exercising practices. I would say that if an athlete suddenly starts a new diet, very similar to what I did in college, that's probably a warning sign. Some people, not everyone who's going to be vegetarian or vegan is going to have an eating disorder, but that it's usually one of the first signs, or maybe they're withdrawing from their teammates or friends, or seem very tired in their workouts. They may, we have pasta dinners for cross country and track. So maybe they aren't showing up to team dinners or they maybe aren't doing as well in school. Again, it's just looking at behavior changes And that's why it's so important to know your athletes well and to develop this relationship with them because you're one of the first people that's going to be able to recognize when there are behavior changes. And it doesn't mean you're going to be the one diagnosing an eating disorder. It could be something else, but just keeping an eye out for any big changes within the athlete as a person or in their training and being able to address that in a very compassionate way, open conversation and not saying anything about their weight changes, just pointing out specific behaviors that you see. Absolutely. And it sounds like leading with that concern, I'm concerned about you and here are the things I'm concerned about and here are the things that you see and really leaning into that relationship you have with your athlete that that does look up to you and does see you as a valuable uh, mentor and influence in their life. So you, I imagine you have these conversations sometimes, maybe a coach will say, oh, well, I had this I had this athlete that I was really concerned about. I didn't know what to say. And I was afraid of saying the wrong thing. And I I didn't know where to start. What would you tell that coach? As I mentioned, I learned from the best. Dr. Paula Quattrimoni wrote a great blog post that goes into detail about how to approach someone who may be struggling. And she gives all different ideas to work with different responses from an athlete or anyone who's struggling. And the three biggest things that I came away from it, it's like, three big steps, because it's easier for me to have that in my head when I'm talking to an athlete, because you get nervous, like you want to make sure you're approaching it right. It's a really tricky topic. So the first one is asking how they are just to get that conversation going. My coach usually did that. He would just do small talk in the beginning of our one-on-one conversations, just to get you feeling comfortable and checking in because some athletes may open up and say, yeah, actually I'm really struggling with this right now. Or some are just going to say, well, probably most people are going to say, oh, I'm doing fine because that's usually how we respond. Very, very normal. And then the second would be pointing out two to three specific behaviors that you've noticed, not anything that other people have mentioned, but what you as a coach have seen and sticking to those facts. It helps to also talk with the athletic trainer prior to this conversation to see if there's anything else that you might need to address in that conversation, especially in that part when you're talking about behaviors and giving the athlete some time to be able to open up if they do. Some will just remain quiet and listen to what you're saying to them. And finally, wrapping up with, are you willing to get some help? A lot, well, most of the time, athletes will probably be in denial, not be really open to receiving help, but saying that you're going to follow up and continue to have some conversations and check in with them, or if they are open to getting some help working with the athletic trainer to talk about those resources 
And if someone is in complete denial and just says, I'm good, we don't need to address this at all, saying something along the lines of, well, these specific behaviors have me concerned, so why don't we follow up with professional, like an athletic trainer, just to rule it out and make sure you're really okay. It's a tough conversation to have. You're not going to be perfect the first time around. I wasn't, and I'm still learning and working on it, but it's a nice little conversation starter to have, uh, just a basic outline that I, I try to work with. And again, it's thanks to Dr. Paula Quattrimoni. That's awesome. It is so nice to have a little framework for those tough conversations, isn't it? Let's, as we, as we close our time together, let's talk a little bit about your book and, and where people can learn more about you. So where can people learn more about your work and get a, get a, you know, get their hands on a copy of your memoir? Yeah, I've always wanted to write a book about running from a very young age. Like I knew that I wanted to be an author. I just didn't think it would be a book about running and eating disorders. So that did change things a little bit. And by the time I entered college, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I thought, okay, I guess I'll just be an English major because they must read and write a lot. <laughs> and I was journaling throughout my eating disorder experience, especially when I started a very specific diet because I thought this diet was going to change my life and I wanted to document it. Well, it turns out it actually documented my whole eating disorder journey. And from there, I started the Running in Silence website blog when I finally came to terms with the eating disorder I was struggling with, found so many other people who could relate and decided I would write the book I had always wanted to read and documented most of my journey with the eating disorder in that book, really highlighting the relationships that were built up and also torn away through the eating disorder and how it affected my running, just the ups and downs of the, the cycle of running and got it published in 2016 and then had the second edition published in 2020. And the title of the book, Running in Silence, is what led to the nonprofit Running in Silence because I was not talking about what was going on with my eating disorder. This doesn't just apply to runners. Any athlete can struggle with an eating disorder. It just happened to be running for me. So we make sure to really address all athletes. And yeah, I ended up putting that book together and hoping to reach more people who feel alone or coaches who want to better understand what it's like to struggle with this. What a fantastic resource to share with the world. And you're working on another book right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Or is that still under wraps? Oh, it's been a long time coming because I actually had it, most of it written in 2015, but I've been pretty busy like speaking and helping other people edit their books and pretty busy just like living a normal life too, which is so nice to say. Yeah, but the second book is about my struggle getting out of running and finding myself outside of the sport, outside of my identity. My kneecap ended up breaking in my senior year at Aquinas College, yeah, while I was running. So that forced me out of running. I had a few surgeries and everything, but I dive into that because that was like the pivotal moment in my life. I was still kind of struggling with an eating disorder, but found that there was a lot of hope and great things to live for. So I really, I like the second book better, but I, I'm still in the editing process. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we look forward to reading it when you're when you put it out into the world. That'll be fantastic. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for joining us today. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 
If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Andy Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.